Our Father, you may be unseen, but you see all. And in your light, we see light. Please show us this morning our own hearts through the light of your word. Show us where you would have us repent, to think and behave differently. And show us where you would trust, have us trust more deeply in your fatherly care. Well, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to share with you uh, some words from a 16-year-old girl. Uh, Her name is Jane Grey. Uh, She's famous in history for being the unexpected Queen of England for just nine days in 1553. Uh, After her predecessor, King Edward VI, son of King Henry VIII, had the royal succession line changed right before he died uh, at the time to favour the Protestant reformers. Uh, But his plan was short-lived because Lady Jane was later imprisoned and condemned to death uh, by her cousin, Mary I, a die-hard Roman Catholic, also known in history as Bloody Mary. But this is a letter which Jane wrote from prison to her former Protestant chaplain, Thomas Harding. Uh, And he had returned back to being a Catholic now that Queen Mary had come to the throne. And that caused Jane some great distress, and so I'm sharing it with you by way of an introduction, uh, because we spent an afternoon as a staff team last week thinking about the Reformation, uh, that battle 500 or so years ago in and outside of the church related to, among other things, salvation. How is it that a man or woman is saved? The cross of Jesus, what did it achieve? And God's Word, its supreme authority for our lives. And uh, we thought about also why the Reformation still matters today. And I'll admit, I was a little sceptical at first uh, about how this little church history session snuck its way onto our team retreat agenda, Dave. Uh, But I was wrong. And so I want to give you a, a small taste of something, uh, something I found very interesting as we looked at. Uh, now, I've smoothed out uh, a bit of Jane's older English. Her letter's actually quite long, uh, and it doesn't all flow exactly as I'll read it now, but I've pieced together a few selections just to give you a feel overall. So she writes this to, her Tom- uh, to Thomas, her old chaplain. So often as I call to mind, dear friend and chosen brother, the dreadful and fearful sayings of God, that he who lays his hand upon the plough and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of heaven. And on the other side, I remember the words of comfort from our Saviour Christ to all those who forsaking themselves do follow him. I cannot but marvel at you and lament your case. You who for some time have been my faithful brother, but now a stranger and apostate, you for some time my stout Christian soldier, but now a cowardly runaway. Why do you rather choose to live miserably with shame in this world, rather than to die gloriously and raise in honour, and reign in honour with Christ to the end of all eternity? in whom even in death there is life beyond. Where you have before now been a public declarer of God's name, will you now become a defacer of His glory? I myself will not refuse the true God and worship the invention of man, 
the golden calf, the whore of Babylon, the Romish religion, the abominable idol, the wicked, most wicked mass. Will you torment again, rent and tear the most precious body of our Saviour Christ? Will you take upon yourself to offer up any sacrifice unto God for our sins, considering Christ offered up himself, as St. Paul said, upon the cross, a lively sacrifice once for all? Our Saviour Christ says to his disciples, they shall accuse you and bring you before the princes and rulers for my name's sake. And some of you they shall persecute and kill, but fear not, he says. Neither care not what you shall say, for it is my spirit that speaks in you. The hand of the highest shall defend you, for the hairs of your head are numbered, and none of them shall perish. I have laid up treasure for you, says he where no thief can steal, nor moth corrupt. And happy are you if you endure to the end. And she finishes, yours, if you be Christ's. Jane. She was 16 years old. Just think about that. Think about... What captures the time and attention of a 16-year-old girl in Sydney today? Uh, well, among other things, I want to say on topic for today, the thick fog of materialism is the raging battle for our hearts that we don't even see. Do you think Jane had a grasp on eternity? Do you think Jane was seeing clearly? Do you think Jane knew which side she was on? Well, what about you and I? As we come to look at what Jesus says in the second half of Matthew chapter 6, our big question this morning is this, where is your heart? If you're writing notes, four points. Point number one, invest eternally. Point number two, perceive clearly. Point number three, decide wholeheartedly. And point number four, seek first his kingdom. Well, let's start with point number one, invest eternally. We well, might remember last week uh, in the first half of Matthew chapter six, uh, midway through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls his uh, disciples to pay attention to their motivations, what's going on internally as they practice their acts of righteousness, their giving, their praying, their fasting. Who are they seeking to please? An audience that's out there, or their heavenly Father who's up there, who sees, who rewards. This week, Jesus is still uh, concerned with his disciples' hearts, and he continues to direct their attention upwards, up to God and his kingdom, but the topic shifts as well. It, it broadens out from religious hypocrisy to instead how disciples of his are to live every part of their lives. And so Jesus draws their attention and ours at the start of this section to treasure. Because when you look at where your treasure's invested, it'll help you to answer the question, where's my heart? So have your Bibles open and look with me at what Jesus uh, says next from Matthew chapter 6, picking it up from verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, 
where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I notice Jesus mentions treasure three times here, and he contrasts two different ways to invest. Firstly, verse 19, he commands his disciples, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Don't be a materialist. And he gives a fairly simple reason for why not, because it's a bad investment. It doesn't last. Secondly, verse 20, he tells them where they should store up their treasure instead, in heaven, because it's a great investment. Why? Because treasures in heaven do last. They last eternally. And thirdly, verse 21, he points out how our treasures actually reveal the very orientation of our hearts. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And it's important to understand when Jesus is talking about the heart, uh, he's not talking about the physical organ that pumps blood around our body. He's speaking uh, metaphorically, but he's also not talking about just our feelings or our emotions in a modern sense either. No, in the Bible, the heart refers to all of our being. Uh, It's holistic. It's our hearts, it's our minds, it's our will, it's our whole inner person. And in essence, Jesus is saying, where your treasure is, that is where your true self lives as well. John Carson puts it like this, for the things we treasure actually govern our lives. What we value tugs at our minds and emotions. It consumes our time with planning, with daydreaming, and with effort to achieve. I wonder if you uh, remember the story of Achan in the Old Testament. Uh, By way of illustration, it comes up in Joshua chapter 7, right after God's delivered the city of Jericho single-handedly into Israel's hands. Uh, But in the details of the passage uh, in the chapter before, he also warned uh, his people through Joshua, and he says this, But keep away from the devoted things, so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into His treasury. Well, do you remember what the Israelite Achan did next? In the very next chapter, he went and he took some of the devoted treasure and he hid it in the ground for himself, but he didn't get away with it. In fact, in doing so, he brought about his own terrible destruction, as you read on in that passage. Why? Because his heart was set on earthly things. I wonder if you remember another person, Demas. Uh, He's mentioned in the New Testament quite briefly by Paul in his second letter to Timothy in chapter 4, and he writes, Do your best to come to me quickly, Timothy. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Uh, Why did Demas abandon Paul? Because his heart was set on earthly things. But have a look at what Paul also writes to Timothy right before he mentions Demas. He says this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to to all who have longed for His appearing. Elsewhere, Paul puts it like this in Colossians 3 verse 1, 
Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Uh, You see, the principle is we move toward where we fix our gaze. The things we value, that we treasure, uh, they shape and form and mould our character deeply. So what about you and I? What captures our time and our attention in a culture so thoroughly swamped in materialism? What do we treasure? Where is our heart at? We need to examine our hearts, don't we? And so here's just a few practical suggestions for this week. You might like to consider firstly, uh, perhaps praying a simple prayer like this. Lord, show me if I'm investing in the wrong places. And if I am, help me to invest eternally for what will last. Please show me, Lord, where I need to change. That's a prayer I want to pray this week. I'm keenly aware that this passage applies to me as well as you. Secondly, maybe practically this week, it might be helpful to meet up with a friend, uh, chat over dinner with a spouse, discuss in a growth group and ask each other some questions. What do my regular thoughts and daydreams reveal about what I care most about? Uh, What are the things I worry about? What does that tell me about what I treasure? What do I fear losing or being without? What does that show me about where my security is tied? Show me, Lord, where I need to change. Thirdly, if you were with us 12 months ago, we did a series on the joy of giving. Money, me, and eternity. Uh, Maybe 12 months on, now's the time to actually download a bank statement and just reflect yourself personally on how do my spending habits this year reveal my own current priorities? Show me, Lord where I need to change. So firstly, invest eternally, which then leads secondly to point number two, perceive clearly. Well, Jesus uh, has already drawn a contrast for his disciples between two very different ways of investing down here or up here, but now he moves on to a second contrast for his disciples. It's two very different ways of seeing, two different visions. Have a look with me from verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Remember our big overall question, where is your heart? Commenting about these verses, John Stott mentions, uh, it's often the case that in the Bible... The eye is equivalent to the heart, that is, to set the heart is, and to fix the eye means the same thing. Here in the sermon, Jesus passes from the importance of having our heart in the right place, verse 21, to the importance of our eyes being sound and healthy. And the argument seems to go like this, just as our eye affects our whole body, so our ambition, Stott says, where we fix our eyes and our heart affects our whole life. In other words, Jesus' contrast here uh, is speaking about a person who spiritually sees clearly their eye is healthy. And we see the word there in verse 21, Uh, except it's worth being aware too, uh, you might even have a footnote in your Bible like I do, that the word healthy in the original uh, can also mean, and here it gets debated, uh, is it generous or is it being single-minded? 
uh, single would actually be the more natural translation, but in a context you can see why it could also be generous. Uh, I take it it's single-minded, of having an undivided loyalty. It's a heart which is focused on the right things. But we've seen, haven't we, that it's focused on the things of God, on being generous. And so that whole person's body is walking in the light. Whereas a person who sees poorly, spiritually speaking, their eye is unhealthy. It is stingy. Uh, the, the literal uh, translation of the same word means bad or evil. Because their heart is focused on the wrong things. And I take it from the wider context of the passage on either side, it's because they are focused instead on the material things of the world. The stuff that won't last. Their instincts are for selfish, selfish greed. And so their whole body walks in darkness. Oh, which begs some questions. How are our own eyes going? What are we focused on? Where are our eyes leading us? What are you looking at? How is that shaping who you are? Because if you and I don't perceive clearly, if we're fixated firmly on material stuff, then we're no different to the rich fool in Luke 12. He kept building barns over and over. I, I, my, my. He's all about himself. And in the end, that path of life leads to utter spiritual disaster. And so again, we need to ask ourselves, where is my heart? Am I perceiving clearly? I remember uh, being at a conference a few years ago uh, where the main speaker used to uh, be here at our church, Andrew Hurd, was addressing people in full-time ministry up on the Central Coast. And he really just drove home one point over and over. Get clarity. Get clarity. Why? Because he wanted to reshape the way we were seeing our lives. He wanted to cut through a worldly, materialistic vision of life. And so let me share what he said at some length. I've slightly abbreviated it, but uh, it's about getting clarity on key, five key truths. And so by way of application, here's what he said. I find them helpful. They, they sharpen my own convictions. Firstly, he said, get clarity about heaven and hell. You cannot read the gospel accounts and not notice how obsessed Jesus is with heaven and hell. Enter through the narrow gate because the broad way leads to destruction. In a couple of weeks' time, Michael will be preaching on that exact passage here. Well, we'll be looking. Uh, well, hell is real. And it goes for a very long time and it's horrendous. But heaven is glorious and so set your hopes on eternal life, on the joy that lies before us. That's number one. Secondly... Get clear, he said, about God's big picture vision. For example, Ephesians 1 verse 10, we read about God's determination. When the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity of all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In other words, God made people for Jesus. So get hold of that vision and let it shape all of your days. Thirdly, he said, get clear about the cross. Appreciate that the Son of God gave himself his life to save people. And it came at a great cost of his own life. It wasn't a hobby. He quoted Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? 1 John 3.16, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Fourthly, get clear about the brevity of life. Because the Bible says over and over, life is over in a moment. We're like the grass of the field which here today and gone tomorrow. We're like a mist that vanishes. Life 
is very brief. And fifthly, get clear about love. 1 John 4, 8, that God is love. We have a God who's so, His heart is so big, He yearns in love. So that although the secret decrees of God, uh, which we're going to come to later in the year, Romans 9, might be that not all are saved. And yet at the same time, that's balanced with the revealed will of God. It's that He doesn't delight in the death of anyone. Love is what leads Jesus to have such compassion in Matthew 23. He longs to gather up people like a hen gathers up her chicks. He weeps over Jerusalem. It's a yearning love. 2 Peter 3 verse 9 tells us God is patient with us, not wanting any to perish. There's five things to be clear about. Heaven and hell, God's big vision, the cross, the brevity of life and love. And so how's our spiritual eyesight? Are we letting the Bible and Jesus' words shape the way we see everything? Well, we've seen so far where to invest eternally, where to perceive clearly, but thirdly, where to decide wholeheartedly. Uh, I'm one of six children. Uh, My dad used to teach my five siblings and I uh, about 10, possibly 20 different memory verses as we were growing up. Uh, And there were embarrassing moments where he would really dramatise them in scripture class and things like that. Uh, And I have to admit, I can't actually remember all of them now uh, off the top of my head, but I do remember this next verse in our passage, and it went like this. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one or love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, I think the reason why my dad taught us all that memory verse uh, wasn't just because he was a rector in Bellevue Hill. Uh, But it's the sort of verse we actually do need to remember. It's the sort of demanding saying of Jesus which we need to etch into our hearts because most of us hear what Jesus is saying And in principle, we agree. And then we go away for the rest of the week, not really believing what he said at all. We all find what Jesus says here so hard to believe, don't we? You see, Jesus says, you cannot serve both God and money. He doesn't say it's pretty tricky. He doesn't say it's really just about getting the balance right. Uh, No, Jesus uses the language of impossibility. And yet, how easy is it for us in such a materialistic culture to gravitate towards the complete impossible application of this passage and think that we're different. We can serve both God and money. But Jesus says, our loyalty can't be divided. We have to decide wholeheartedly. You see, the idea of service in the original, it means slavery. And the word for master carries the idea of ownership. In other words, Jesus is saying here, there are only two masters, God and money, or literally God and mammon, your wealth, your material things. But both these masters make total demands on us. Worldly materialism demands our complete devotion. Remember the parable of the soils? The thorns squeeze out and choke the good word. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5 tells us so that God, 
God demands our complete devotion to. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. God wants our all. It's like the rich young ruler in Luke 18. He needed to decide wholeheartedly. And so when Jesus pointed out, pointed the thing, the thing in his heart and challenged him to sell everything he had, give to the poor, what did he do? He went away sad. Because not only did he have so many possessions, but ultimately his possessions owned him. They were the controlling influence in his life. Well, what about you? Where is your heart? Because all of us need to choose between two masters who we will serve. And it reminds me of uh, that passage Anne read earlier from Luke, uh, Old Testament, Joshua chapter 24, where he's standing on the cusp of the promised land with the people of Israel and he challenges them to decide wholeheartedly, choose this day whom you will serve. And it's this stark challenge to turn away from idolatry And I think that's something my dad was uh, drilling into our family through that memory verse. It was his way of saying, like Joshua, but as for me and for my house, we will serve the Lord. And it's a challenge and it's a model. And I hope you will want to lead your family the way I want to lead my family similarly. Where is your heart? Is your life governed differently to the world around you? Have you decided wholeheartedly? I had a small chuckle this past week reading one of the commentaries when I came across this story on uh, point, Uh, so let me share it with you. Uh, It's about a farmer who one day went happily and with great joy in his heart to report to his wife and family that their best cow had given birth to twin calves, one red and one white. And he said, you know, I have suddenly had a feeling and impulse that we must dedicate one of these calves to the Lord. We will bring them up together, and when a time comes, we will sell one and keep the proceeds, and we will sell the other and give the proceeds to the Lord's work. His wife asked him, well, which are we going to dedicate to the Lord? Oh, there's no need to bother about that now, he replied. We will treat them both in the same way, and then when a time comes, we will do as I say, and off he went. But in a few months' time, the man entered his kitchen looking very miserable and unhappy, When his wife asked him about what was troubling him, he answered, I have bad news to tell you. The Lord's calf is dead. (laughs) But she said, you had not decided which one would be the Lord's calf. Oh, yes, I had always decided. It was to be the white one, and it is the white one that has died. The Lord's calf is dead. Uh, Well, you might give a small smile or chuckle uh, like I did, but as a writer went on to point out next, let's be careful with this parable not to be laughing at ourselves. How often does the Lord's calf die when our own cost of living becomes too difficult? Invest eternally. Perceive clearly. Decide wholeheartedly. And finally, and more briefly, seek first his kingdom. Well, so far, Jesus in this passage has been challenging his disciples to make a choice. Each time between two contrasts, they're to choose between investing on earth or investing in heaven. They're to choose between being filled with light or filled with darkness. They're to choose between serving God or serving money. 
And finally, they're to choose between worrying about what the pagans seek after, search after, or seeking about what God is concerned most about. So look at it with me from verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about, what about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? It's not hard to pick up on uh, one of Jesus' main points in this section. He tells us three times, verse 25, verse 31, verse 34, do not worry. Literally he says, do not be anxious about your life at the beginning. And in particular, Jesus is teaching his disciples, don't be preoccupied with what the world cares and concerns about. Don't reduce your whole life down, like materialism does, to food and drink and clothing. That's what the pagans, the pagans, they're those who don't know God at all. That's what they do. After all, where is your heart? Verse 32, for the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. You see, Jesus here is challenging his disciples to think and to reason differently to the pagans around them. Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. I was thinking when I was away, I didn't have my normal white noise blocking out the sound outside, so I woke up to the birds. There we go. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more, much more valuable than they? I look at the flowers. They do not labor or spin. And yet your heavenly Father clothes that which is here today, gone tomorrow. And the point is, how much more can you trust your heavenly Father to clothe you too? You see, one of the reasons why we are so prone to be anxious in the first place is simply because we all forget. We forget, don't we, that we're not the king or queen of this world. We're not actually in control. And you might be uh, here today as someone who's not a Christian. As one writer, uh, writer describes it, it's not so much that you don't have enough faith, it's that you've got too much. It's that you are trusting too much in yourself. It's that you really do think, ultimately, I can control my life. My life without reference to God. But that repeatedly is the opposite of the message of the Bible. Consistently, we are taught we are not independent beings. We live in sin and rebellion about, uh, against God, our Creator, when we live that way. In fact, there's no more reason to be anxious, uh, no one more, uh, with more reason to be anxious than a person who tries to live without God. In a moment, he's about to say... Verse 27, can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? No, it's the Christian, the Christian who sees himself in right perspective with God as their king. And Jesus is speaking to them and he says, we forget who our God is too. He's our heavenly father. We can depend on him. We can trust in him. Just look at the world around you. Look at how he provides but remember too that He is the true King of our world. He is the one who really is in complete control, not us. But notice here finally as well, Jesus doesn't just say, uh, He doesn't just keep it in the negative, do not worry, Jesus knows us too well. He knows that every one of us needs something to pursue. 
Every one of us gravitates somewhere. And we're not to run after what the pagans run after. Instead, we are to seek positively instead, verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. It's a challenge to Jesus' disciples about their life's priorities. They're to be preoccupied with God's kingdom instead, with his righteousness. You remember last year, uh, last week, the three priorities Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Pray and be concerned first and foremost for God and his name. Pray and be concerned about God's kingdom. Pray and be concerned about his will being done in your life, in everyone's life. And so where's your heart in this? Are you investing eternally? Are you perceiving clearly? Are you deciding wholeheartedly? Are you seeking first his kingdom? Well, by way of wrapping up, let me take us back to, just for a moment, our church history session as a staff team. Uh, We were led very kindly by Mark Ernge. He teaches church history at Moore College. Uh, And he happened to bring with him uh, some very rare and old Reformation books. Uh, from a college library uh, for some show and tell. We had to wash our hands and make sure we were very careful with them. Uh, but one of the books, the next one, is Tyndale's New Testament from 1550 AD. That's how old it is. And inside of it, someone left quite a challenging note. Let me read it to you. It says, In Bloody Mary's reign, the man who owned this New Testament would have been burned at the stake if it had been discovered in his possession. He risked his life to read his Bible, would you? I thought yesterday as I prepared this sermon, well, it's almost right. You see, the night before Jane, Jane Grey's earthly end through execution by beheading in the Tower of London in 1554, she wrote in her Greek New Testament a letter for her younger sister Catherine, in which she said, I have sent you, good sister Catherine, a book, which although it be not outwardly trimmed with gold, yet inwardly it is more worth than precious stones. It is the book, dear sister of the law of the Lord. It is his testament and last will, which he bequeathed unto us wretches, which shall lead you to path of eternal joy. And if you have a good mind to read it, and with an earnest desire to follow it, it shall bring you to an immortal everlasting life. It will teach you to live and learn you to die. And you know that Jane left a PS at the end of her letter to Thomas Harding as well. It said this, PS, be constant, be constant. Fear not for pain. Christ has delivered you and heaven is your gain. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, please loosen the grip that material things has on every one of our hearts. We cannot serve two masters. And so help us to decide today to serve you and you alone. Please give us wisdom in this and please heighten our spiritual awareness about the things related to your kingdom. Help us to seek after them with a single-minded vision so that the things on earth may grow slowly dim in the light of your glory and grace.
Amen.